actually ask Kim um, and Rick Poole to come to the platform for just a moment. I've asked the Pools to, to come um, and just be an encouragement to us uh, about uh, the upcoming Bible study and, and just the, the one that they walked through with us uh, in, in the Revelation series that we were doing. And so um, if you guys would um, give, give the Pools your undivided attention and, and welcome them. We, um, when he asked, would you speak about um, the Revelation Bible study? Um, how do you do that in three minutes? Um, <laughs> that, hello. Um, so September of 99 is when I committed to Christ to follow him and have had been underneath five pastors. Um, I have never had a pastor-led Bible study. Um, I've done lots of YouTube, lots of radio, lots of conferences, lots of, um, it, is, it is wonderful to sit under a um, very scholarly, well-educated, dividing the word correctly, unashamed of the gospel, won't change it because I want to be liked by you, Pastor. Um, people might have a difficult time uh, with him. Um, delivery or whatever, but I'm telling you what, um, today he's, I call him an end times pastor on purpose to change a congregation that's critical from milk to meat to um, revelation. I've, I've studied a little bit with um, tapes, but the, it was different. I loved that there's um, someone among us that seems very serious that actually is quite a little card. And I didn't know that until the, you can have questions and answers and everyone adds something different. He's relatable, instructive, challenged us with different questions. Um, I love that interactive, smaller atmosphere and I got a ton out of it. Still, I feel like I'm 2.5 on a scale of 1 to 10. I would go through it again. Um, I can't wait for Romans. Romans, um, systematic theology in a day when people are changing the Bible, cutting out parts of the Bible. It's critical. I would love to get to know you if you come on Wednesdays with us. That would be awesome. Yeah, um, not specifically about the study of Revelation itself, but what I liked is that it is, you get to know each other, um, we go through verse by verse, whatever, we'll do the same in Romans, I'm sure. Um, and that's really cool, but um, get, we get to ask questions. And then uh, if you've been here more than once, you, Josh does get a little excited preaching sometimes, so we know that. But down there, it's still, it's, it's much more mellow. You're still hearing the truth. Um, so that is great. And lastly, probably there is coffee and Kay's cookies, so that's a bonus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One more thing. I asked him, um, how long did you study for each so that we can receive that? Um, and he said seven or eight hours for every time we sat under him, and sometimes ten if they were tough. And to think that all of that packed in, that we can get that. I can't study that much at home. I, I don't have that many hours to study. Um, please consider it. Um, you will walk through life better if you do. Thank you. Will you Thank guys you give it up for the full thing?
So real, real quick, um, I, I appreciate all of the, the kind um, and encouraging words uh, that they gave, uh, but I want you to know I get to do this. I don't have to do this. I get to do this. And God has called me here uh, to be your pastor. Um, I've been here for over a year now. I've gotten to know many of you. Um, and I want you to know that I love you dearly. And I, I want nothing more uh, than for our church to be um, a faithful church to truth. To truth. And not my truth and not your truth, but God's truth. God's truth. And so with that being said, let's open up, open up God's truth. Um, if you would turn with me to the book of John, the book of John chapter 20. Now, uh, gold star students in here, we are going to be flipping uh, to a couple of different places. And so I know that's not typical of me. I know typically we open up one passage and we linger there. Uh, but the Lord has kind of weaved my way through a couple of different things. And so I'm excited about today. Uh, but I have a question. Has anyone in here ever gone through something in life and you began to share with somebody and they looked at you with deer in the headlight looks like they had no idea what you were talking? Anybody? Okay. Now, what about the other? How did that make you feel? Like you're trying to share whether it's something exciting. I've noticed that at times like I've experienced something with the Lord and I felt so compelled to share it with somebody and they were just like, that's great. And like my enthusiasm, right? So I, I think some, sometimes downstairs in the Bible study, I get jazzed up about the word of God and I'll start talking and then like I see the eyes like, oh man, oh man, <laughs> right? Has uh, anybody ever, ever experienced that, right? Well, what about on the flip side of that? Have you, ever, have you ever talked to somebody and you began to share your struggle with them? Your, your, your circumstance, your, your storm and that person goes, I know exactly how you feel because I've walked through that. Anybody? You ever been comforted by somebody who was comforted by the Lord in that same situation? How did that make you feel? Right? You're like, there's, there's normal people. I'm, I'm normal, right? Like that, that's, my wife and I experienced that several years ago. We, uh, we, my wife and I were, were debating on, on whether or not we were going to host a, a small group at our church in Florida, and we wanted to check it out, and we were just launching them, and, and we went to the small group, and um, anyone, a, anyone know, like sometimes the pastor shows up and then nobody wants to talk, or the pastor shows up and then everybody expects, well, the pastor's going to lead it, and the pastor's going to pray, and the pastor's going to say all the right answers, and the pastor's going to ask the hard questions, and we just wanted to go uh, so that we could have community with other people. And so we go, and about three or four uh, times into going, um, a, a young family came in, and um, you could just tell that they were distraught. There was something going on, and, and we all began to eat, and my wife and I just began uh, to interact with this couple. And we began to kind of exchange stories. I didn't know them very well, and... Um, and they began to share some things that their family was walking through in that very moment of time. That time when we were able to connect. And as, as they were beginning to share, immediately a connection was formed, at least in my mind, because I said, I know what they're going through. My wife and I have walked through that very thing. 
And I remember them getting to the end, and my wife and I looked at each other almost as if to say the same thing. There's another couple that's, that's going through it. It's almost as if God was saying, here they are. Here they are. Like I'm, I'm placing them into your lap for you to speak truth. And my wife and I began to share some of the things that we walked through, and they looked at us, and they're like, we truly are normal. We truly are, we thought we were the only ones. We, we thought that anyone ever find themselves there. I think I'm the only one. You know, and as, as, as I was thinking uh, about this sermon and in this day and reflecting back and, and thinking about the scenes that surrounded the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, I couldn't help but be somewhat drawn to the emotion that you see in Scripture from the people that we encounter. Wondering, have I ever felt perplexed? Have I ever felt bewildered in the word of God? I didn't know what was going on. Have I ever been sad, frustrated, angry, hurt? And, and I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Luke chapter 24 John chapter 20, they describe for us the morning of the resurrection and we see this interaction and encounter with people and the things that they're experiencing. And so if you would, start with me in verse number 1 of John chapter 20. He says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Now that disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, who is that? John. It's John. And it says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And so Peter went out with the other disciple. So he went out with John and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Listen, I see this interaction, right? Peter and then John, the one whom Jesus loved, sprinting to get to the tomb. But John makes it there first. Now, just a little side note. John made it to the tomb before the other disciples. That's that's why he wrote a book called First John. That was a joke for you guys. You'll, you guys will get it in about five minutes. Look with me now at verse five. And, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth laying there, and he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloth laying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not laying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. Now I want us to stop right there for just a moment. In scripture, in the other gospel accounts, we know that Thomas didn't believe. We know that Peter doesn't understand yet. We know that Mary is crying as though there is no hope. But I believe Luke's account sums up the feelings that are going on inside of everyone. So you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read to you two verses from Luke chapter 24. If you want to reference it or write it down, it's verses 11 and 12. And it says this. This is how he, he writes he says, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. 
Luke is talking about the disciples or the apostles as some, some versions of the Bible read. Now we know that the women went to the tomb prior to this and they saw that the stone was rolled away and the angel said to them, you are not, you're not going to find what you're looking for here. And what do they do? They ran back and they told the apostles. So he says, he says the words seemed like an idle tale and they did not believe them in verse 11. Verse 12, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now I want to stop there. They were all experiencing the same things. Sadness, bewilderment. They were perplexed at what was going on. Church, I want you to note something this morning, that despite their feelings, the testimony of the women was not believed. Did you hear it? It was like an idle tale that they did not believe. The testimony of the woman. In fact, to the apostles, it seemed as if the woman told, what did Luke use? Idle tales. That term idle tales comes from the Greek word leros. And it means uh, a medical term that is used to describe a man who is feverish or insane. Idle tales. They thought that they were lying. For those of you who want to write it down, it's L-E-R-O-S. Laros. There, there's an array of an emotion that we see here that's running through each of them. I mean, what's going on now? The body of Christ is gone. What do we do? Where do we go? I can almost see the disciples now. And what they understood about their situation was that they did not understand what was happening. They didn't. They were in a state of confusion, and this is all begins to change as Jesus begins to make appearances and affirms unto them who he is. And once they began to encounter the risen Christ, they begin to change. You see the attitude shift. They were never the same. We know at the end of John that Peter and Jesus have an encounter, and Peter's restored. We know that Thomas believes Mary is given hope. Others are enlightened and hundreds experience and encounter the risen Christ. And they were each changed. Now I want, yeah, that's right, amen. They were changed. Gold Star students, I want you to flip with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want you to see with me how Paul begins to unpack what happened. He begins to share some things here. He kicks off in verse number one, and he says, Now, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now stop with me right there for just a moment. The gospel, Paul is saying, is only of benefit if we receive it and stand in it. Did you guys catch that? I want you to notate that in your Bible. The, the gospel is only a benefit if you receive it and if you stand in it, meaning that you follow the truths of it. You know that word gospel, we all know if you've been in church any length of time that the word gospel means good news, right church? Yep, gospel means good news. Now I, I want to kind of throw out a fact to you that most people don't realize. That, that word good news or that word gospel was used in ancient times and it did not have to, it did not 
have to describe the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. It described any type of good news. And so the way that it was used in Jesus' day, gospel, was any type of good news. Now that's, that's the crazy thing, right? Is that the word was used so flippantly, but here's the thing. This is the best part about it. The best news ever is that we can be saved from the punishment that we deserve for God because of what Jesus did for us. And that is the gospel in which Paul is preaching to. Amen, church? That's the gospel in which Paul, he said to receive and stand on the truth. He also said this again to the church at Thessalonica when he said this. The verse is going to hit the screen. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Why? Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it. You welcomed, not as the words of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who what? Believe. You who believe. Look at verse number 3 of of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul goes on to say, For I delivered to you as of first importance that I have received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. He's now sharing the gospel again with them. He says that he, according to Scripture, and that he appeared, sorry, back up to verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And let's stop before we get to verse number five. Paul did not make up this gospel. I'm going to say it again. Paul did not make up this gospel. He received it, not from a man, but from Jesus Christ. According to Galatians chapter one, he met Christ on the road to Damascus. He was a changed man. He didn't make up the gospel, but he delivered the truth in which he received. This was not Paul's gospel in the sense that he created it or that he fashioned it, but it was Paul's gospel in the sense that he personally believed it lived it out and preached it. Lived it out and preached it. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said that the preacher does not make the gospel and if he makes it, it's not worth having. Did you guys catch that? If the preacher makes the gospel, it's not worth having. We are not makers. We are not inventors of the gospel. We are repeaters. We tell the truth and the message that's been relayed to us as truth. Did you guys catch that, what he said? Paul describes the gospel in these few verses, and the important, the, the important thing for us to notice is that the gospel is not insightful teaching. Church, don't miss this. The gospel is not insightful teaching, and it's not good advice. The core of the gospel are things that truly happened in history. Truly. Actual, real, historical events. That's the gospel. It is not a matter of religious opinions. It's not a matter of platitude or fairy tales. It's about real historical events that occurred. Christianity is not based upon opinion, but fact. It's not based upon opinion, but fact. You know, I I have heard over the years in ministry, people say, well, those are your views and these are ours. And if I could just be honest with you, in a a moment of flesh weakness, I want to eviscerate someone who says that. 
If I, like, I'm just being real. Just being real with you guys this morning. I want to eviscerate someone who, who wants me to walk in what our culture calls relativism. Everything's relative. Everything's truth. It doesn't matter. But I, I have learned that whatever your, your views are, that's a really small matter because the facts are found right here in this book. That's a really, it's not my view. This is the, the view of Christ that's been given, given to us. You know, the death of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is the very center of the gospel. Very center. And the idea uh, of glorying in the death of a Savior seems foolish to the world, but it is salvation to those who believe. It's salvation. But what does it mean that Jesus died for our sin? How, how does that death do anything for sin? I read story after story after account after account throughout history of many noble men and women who have died horrible deaths for righteous causes. We, we still see it today. All throughout the centuries, we've seen people die for righteous causes. So how does the death of Jesus do anything at all for our sin? Well, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you because it's important that we understand and we know. At some point before Jesus died, before the veil was torn in two like Scripture talks about, before he cried out the words, it is finished. An awesome spiritual transaction took place on our behalf, on, on my behalf, on, on your behalf. God the Father laid upon Jesus all the guilt and wrath our sin deserved, and Jesus bore it perfectly, totally satisfying the wrath of God upon himself and the cross. Totally and completely. And as horrible and as a physical suffering of Jesus, the spiritual suffering that he endured. The act of being judged for sin in my place was what Jesus really dreaded on the cross. Go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed not once, not twice, but three times. He asked God, if this cup can pass, well, what is that cup? What is the cup that he, he wanted? Hey, God, if it's your will, if this can pass from me, but yet he, he willingly chose the cup of God's righteous wrath and he trembled at drinking it. He trembled. Luke chapter 22, Psalm chapter 75, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25. We get a beautiful picture of the agony that was endured so much so that Christ was sweating blood as he was crying out to God, can this cup pass? But what did he say every time? Not my will, but thy will be done. Thy will. On the cross, Jesus became, as it were, an enemy of God. He was the one who was judged. He was the one forced to drink the cup of the Father's fury so that we wouldn't have to. Church, I... I know typically Easter is the day where we're all like jazzed up and we're rejoicing, but I want us to not miss something here this morning. One, one drop 
of the cup of God's righteous wrath would bear down a soul into endless ruin. Bear it down completely. It would agonize and annihilate the entire universe. Just one drop. Just one single drop. And Christ suffered alone. For the people, there was none with him. None. And because of that suffering, he made atonement for our sins. He paved the way. He did the work of redemption for you, for your neighbor, for me, for your coworker, for your spouse, for your wayward child, for the people in your neighborhood, for your boss. He paved the way. He did the work of redemption. And when that was accomplished, there was no reason for Jesus to hang around on a cross. None. His work was done. Why? So he could go on to the very next thing, and that was defeating death and resurrecting and ascending to sit at the right hand of the Father. Our sins were the thing that were responsible for the death of Jesus. Listen, Jesus did not die for a political cause. Jesus did not die as an enemy of the state or as someone's friend in that moment of time. He was not someone's envy and he went to the cross. He died on the cross as an enemy of God because of the sins of the world were placed upon him. And we know from scripture that the father turned his face away from his son. Jesus did not die as a mere martyr for a cause. He died for the sins of the world. You know, when, when he died, he was then buried. And, and it's oftentimes that we overlook the burial of Jesus as a part of the gospel. He died and he was resurrected is typically the main parts that we hit, but we don't hone in a little bit on the burial, but it's a part of the gospel. And there are several reasons why it's important for us to never forget the burial. Several reasons. One, it's proof that he truly died. It's proof that he, you do not bury someone, unless you are psychotic, you do not bury someone who is not dead. You hear me, church? You bury the one who has died. And so the burial was a confirmation, a confirmation that on the cross that Jesus died and he was taken down to be buried. It's also important because it's a fulfillment of scripture that declared in Isaiah 53, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. With the rich, you know, Jesus was buried in the tomb of a rich man. Joseph, a rich man. So don't forget the burial. Yes, he died on the cross, but he was buried, and then he rose, and then he rose. You know, the, the truth is essential to the gospel. The resurrection is essential to the gospel. If Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins and to remove our guilt, then why is the resurrection so important? Well, because although Jesus bore the full wrath of God on the cross, as if Jesus were a guilty sinner, guilty of all sin, even being made sin for us, as 2 Corinthians tells us, he himself did not become a sinner. Now, you may, you may be confused by that statement, and if you have questions, come and see me after. I'm going to try and explain. And the very act of taking our sin 
Jesus was displaying his holiness. He was giving love for us so that Jesus himself did not become a sinner even though he bore the full guilt of all sin and that's the gospel message. If Jesus himself became a sinner, his sacrifice would have been no good. He was able to take the sin He was able to overcome sin and death, but the only way for him to do so is to remain holy, 100% sinless. Jesus took our punishment for sin on the cross, and he remained a perfect Savior through the entire ordeal, which is the only way that we were able to prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for this reason, the book of Acts, Luke calls Jesus the Holy One. The Holy One, even in His death. But since it's almost incomprehensible that God's Holy One could remain bound by death, the resurrection was absolutely inevitable. Inevitable, church. The resurrection of Jesus is not some add on to a more important work on the cross. If the cross is the payment for our sins, then the empty tomb is the receipt. The empty tomb is the receipt, and it shows that the perfect Son of God made a perfect payment for our sins. And that payment itself is of little good without the receipt. It's of little good. And that's why the resurrection of Jesus was such a prominent theme in the evangelical preaching of the early church. Go back to the book of Acts. Over and over and over you hear about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, the the cross was a time of victorious death. Not a negative triumph. Sin was defeated. Nothing positive was put into place, though, until the resurrection. Nothing positive. If he just died and was never resurrected then his death was for naught. None of us would have a way. But nothing was put into place until the resurrection, which is why the resurrection shows that Jesus did not succumb to the result of sin, which is death. His resurrection was proof that he conquered his conquest. The one thing that he set out to do The fact that Jesus rose again the third day is just as much a part of the gospel as the burial and the death of Jesus. But Jesus was a unique case, church. You know, he did not or or will not rise at some general resurrection. Instead, he, he rose on the third day, victorious over sin and death. But do you, do you remember, church, Jesus proclaimed that he would rise on the third day. And when he did, he gave himself all the more credibility because he stood on his own words. I want us to look back with me real quick at scripture as Paul begins to list in verse number 5 of, of 1 Corinthians 15 all of those who encountered the resurrected Christ. Verse number five says, and then he appeared to Cephas and then the 12 and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And we're going to stop right there. I, I would like... I would like to think this morning that we're all here today because we all have experienced the power of the risen Christ. I would like to think that. That we would understand to some degree at least that the crisis moment in our life is where we wondered, what now? Where's Jesus? Where we realize that we're in desperate need of Christ and we called on him and we were changed and we experienced new life. But I don't know that. I cannot honestly say that every single person sitting in this room has experienced new life and, and statistically speaking there's a fraction of people right now who who probably have not if statistics are correct. But, but church, the, the thing is, is that Christ did not rise from the dead so that we could come to church and have a good day on Easter and make sure that our ticket was still punched to get us into heaven at the very end of time. He did not conquer sin and death for us to not come back to church for, for weeks or months down the road. He didn't conquer sin and death so that we could play with sin. So that we could fool around with the very thing that he died on the cross for you and I to save and rescue us from. And then flippantly ask for forgiveness later. He did not suffer in our place and make a way to have a relationship only for us to refuse his authority and rebel against him. Church, I struggled for the last week and a half to write this sermon. I struggled deep within me. I wrestled for days and nights. I had conversation after conversation with my wife about this very thing. And how would I share some of these things this morning? How? Like, in a moment of flesh weakness, I was afraid. I was afraid... The recovering people pleaser in me tried to rear its ugly head. Like, come on, pastor. It's Easter. Preach a nice message. I brought my friends. I brought my family. I mean, you're going to hit one out of the park, aren't you? Because it's Easter. All of these thoughts came flooding into my head. Church, I want to be able to stand up here and think and believe that every single one of us is sharing in the life of Christ. I want to think that all of us here have been radically changed and are growing more into Christ and looking more like Christ on the outside. But the reality is, is that I don't know that. I don't know that. All I know is that when Jesus had the crowds, he said some very pointed and very offensive things, and the crowds dispersed. Now, that's not my goal here today. That's not my goal. This Sunday of Sundays, maybe the best thing, though, that we could do is truly ask ourselves this question, am I following the risen Christ? Am I following the risen Christ? You know, all the people that we have looked at in Scripture, 
When we look at their lives post-encounter with Jesus, they were radically changed. Every one of them. Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery. We've looked at person after we've seen the disciples. They were all radically changed when they encountered Christ. They had a relationship with him and, and their life looked different. They followed Christ. But what does that look like? What does it look like to follow? Because, I, I mean, we, we confuse the phrase following Jesus sometimes. Would you agree with that? We, we, we effuse the, the phrase following Jesus. I, I mean, Jesus is not physically here, right? Some of you see Jesus in, in, in right here right now. Like, Jesus is not here right now. I mean, in the Acts, we saw his ascension. We saw what Luke wrote, and he, we, he reminded us that he's going to return. But when we say follow, we think of, of terms of going exactly where the person in front of us is leading. Uh, we think of those terms. Like to be right behind them, that we're going in the same direction as them as they lead the way. As they lead the way. Willingly submitting to the person in front of us as they guide us. That's right. He wouldn't. He wouldn't. I took a missions trip several years ago. Missions, missions is very near and dear to my heart. I took a trip, and um, I'd been on the trip several times uh, in the past, and, and we were going um, and had some new adults with us. We were taking a group of teens, and uh, we, we were about to get on a one-lane uh, dirt uh, gravel road that had holes and, and whatnot, um, and on each side of this road was a very steep ditch. And we were trying to explain to people in that vehicle, uh, in the vehicles behind us, uh, please follow right behind me. Don't, don't veer off. Stay right behind me. And it doesn't matter what the road looks like. It doesn't matter who starts coming towards us in another vehicle. It doesn't matter what path you see that looks nicer or better. Stay right behind me. I was driving the front car with our missionary, and we began to navigate, and I could see uh, the look in the eyes as we got into the vehicles, as people were like, is he crazy? He wants us to do what? The, the, the look on the adults' faces, and not just the adults, but the teenagers. We had 15, 16, 17-year-old kids with us, and I said, stay right behind me. Do not veer off. It doesn't matter how nervous you get. It doesn't matter how scared you get. I need you to please follow me. Follow me. I gave specific instructions because, one, I didn't want my team to get lost. Two, I was responsible for a bunch of teenagers, which is serious in and of itself. Three, three, I didn't want my team finding themselves in a situation that they didn't know how to get out of. There were very few of us on the trip that could communicate in Spanish with the people that we were going to encounter. 
Four, I didn't want them to encounter a situation in which they could have been arrested in some way, shape, or form because they couldn't speak the native tongue. And five, I didn't want someone hurt, injured, or, or scary to think about but die. We take off and the very last car got a little bit separated from us. And it's dusty, and you can't really see much of anything. We weren't driving too fast, and they saw a slight veer in the road, and they took it. They took the slight veer. You had to have seen our vehicles, because we, we were not but maybe a quarter mile up ahead of them. You could have seen the smoke uh, or the dust from the road stop, but they just followed the path. And it wasn't too long that we got a call by happenstance from another missionary that they had found our last vehicle. They came back and we began to talk with, with the leader and the adults in that car about following. We, we brought you here and we told you this could be dangerous. We asked you to submit to our authority because we know what we're talking about. We know the right way. We know the path to get to the best place. We know the path that's the safest, that's going to keep you out of harm's way. Follow us. It's not like these people were new to our church. They'd known us for years. The situation ended a lot better than what it could have. If that missionary was not there, who's to say what would have happened to that vehicle? They would have ended up in a village that was 15 miles in the opposite direction of where we were going. With not a single soul in that specific car that spoke Spanish. The reality of following Jesus. The reality is, is that we, all, we like to think that we're following Jesus. We, we like to think that we're following, but if we honestly and openly evaluated our life, we might come to a different conclusion. If we aligned how we live with that of Scripture, we might find that we're not truly following. Listen, I know I have at times. I know I have come to different places in my life where I was not following the way that I should. And I cannot stand up here on this, uh, this stage at this pulpit and tell you that every moment, every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day that I'm following to the best of my ability, I would be a liar. I would be a liar if I stood on this stage and anybody who were to step onto this platform, it's not possible. Why? Because we're sinners. There's no way that we can always do exactly what he says every moment of every day. But we can strive for that. To, to be honest with you, are you truly following? I've had to ask myself that question more times than I would care to share. But don't think. Please, please, church. If we say that we're following Christ... Don't you think there should be a desire to obey his truth? If we say that we're following, shouldn't there be a desire? I, I have read passage after passage of scripture. I, I always come back to some very harsh words 
of Jesus. He said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus said, the things that are inside of you are always going to work their way out. That's why Solomon, the wisest man outside of Jesus Christ, said this, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. He said, whatever's inside of you, it's going to guide you. It's going to direct you. And it's going to come full-fledged right out of your mouth. Why, at times, probably to the annoyance of you, I stand on this platform and tell you that we should be careful about the things that we watch. We should be careful about the things that we allow our kids to see, about the type of music that we listen to, about the places that we go. Not because I I want us to be a church full of self-righteous people, but because I want us to, to be a church that's obedient to the word of God and we fill ourselves with truth so that people see Christ best from us. Not because we're the best church. Not because I want the well to be full of people and lots of money. As great as those things would be for the furtherance of God, God's kingdom here in and through this church, that's not what I'm here for. That's not why we're here. We're here to hear truth, be changed by truth, be obedient to that truth, and then share the gospel so other people can come to that truth. And, and so church, what's the biggest desire in your life right now is it Christ you know when Paul when Paul said that God would give us the desires of our heart it was only after there was a change when those desires began to encapsulate what what is of God you know many people are miserable today because they're trying to fulfill those desires with things that will only leave them empty only leave them empty. They're chasing and choosing things uh, to, to fill the God-sized hole in their life. And then they're failing. They're failing to live in light of the risen Christ. You know, Paul, later on in this chapter, said that if Christ had not risen, we would be miserable. We would be miserable. Think about that. If I didn't have Christ, if you didn't have Christ, think about how much more miserable your life would truly be. But the thing is, so many of God's people who know that truth are still living a miserable life. It it boggles me that we're trying to live life as if the resurrection never happened. You know, I thought back to the end of, of John Christ is placed in the grave. He was buried in that tomb. And what was the immediate response of Peter? I'm going to go back and go fishing. I'm going to go back. And he's in that boat. And they're casting that net all night long. And no fish. And no fish. And no fish. And what happens? Along comes this man on the shoreline. And he goes, hey, cast your net in on that side over there. And they listen to him. And they pull that thing up and bam, instant fulfillment. Peter, it says, Peter rent his clothes. He literally ripped off his clothes and jumped into the water, leaving the boat, leaving the other disciples, leaving the fish. Why? 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 Because he recognized Christ. 
He recognized the one thing that could fill him. And guess what happened, church? He reaped the benefit of his obedience. He reaped the benefit. You know, obeying Christ always brings us closer to Christ. That would have been a great spot for an amen, church. Obeying Christ always brings us closer to Christ. You know, you cannot obey and still be distant from God. You can't obey truth and still be distant. It doesn't work that way. Peter, he swims to the shore and he has a chat with Jesus. Do you guys remember what Jesus said? Peter, do you love me? He didn't say, why are you fishing? He didn't, he didn't go back and, and recall the three times that Peter denied him. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you, do you love me? Feed my sheep. P Peter, do you, do you love me? Do you guys remember in the story? Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Don't you think it's a little ironic that Peter denied Christ three times? And Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Jesus was saying, Peter, am I truly your greatest desire? Am I truly? And he says, if I am, then obey me. Serve me. Reach people. Teach them the truth. Show them my love. Live in such a way that people know that you love me. John 21, verse 19, Jesus says, follow me. Follow. Follow me. Following Christ means total commitment to him. Total. We cannot follow Christ from a distance or as scripture we saw last week where Peter denied Jesus from afar off. We are to be fully committed to the plans and the purposes of Christ in our life and the things that glorify God. Following Christ is summed up in just one word, church. One word, obedience. Obedience. So just look, look at your obedience to God. That's the indicator of your desires. Jesus said, I always do the things that please the Father. That's total commitment. Always seeking to do God's will above my own. Look at the verse on the screen, John chapter 8. It says, he that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. And as he spoke these words, many believed on him. And then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples. But he didn't stop there. You are my disciples indeed. And he goes this, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Set you or make you free. Church, I just want to share something with you as we begin to close. Because this is a game changer. This, could, you, could you pull that, that verse back up for just a moment? This is a game changer, church. 
Your whole life will start to change and look differently when you realize that we don't have to please people here on the earth. Your whole life will change when we realize that we don't have to perform here on the earth. Your life will change when you realize you don't have to pretend. I need to seek to please God and God alone through faithful faithful obedience to him. And as you catch the last part of that verse there, the, the truth makes you free or it sets you free. Church, freedom Freedom is found in following Christ. Church, freedom is found in following Christ. We make following Jesus a religious thing. We make it a list of performance requirements, a a catalog of rules. Uh, Following Christ is free because of the words of Jesus in John 10.10, where he said that I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. That that was the words of Christ himself. What kind of life, church, are you living right now? What kind of life? Would you describe your life no matter what situation you find yourself, would you describe it as abundant? Because you know Jesus. Or maybe are you here today and you're just pretending? You're just pretending. You're, you're trying to perform Or maybe you're trying to outperform somebody else. Are you seeking the attention of certain people in this life? Are you more concerned uh, about the world's opinion of you than that of God's? Are you trying to seek the approval of somebody? Listen, I lived that life for a long time. For a long time, I lived to just make sure that everybody around me was all pleased. I wouldn't say and I wouldn't do anything that that would hurt or hinder anything. I wouldn't speak truth to people. I just wanted everyone to be all happy, happy happy-go-lucky. Everything in life is just puppies and rainbows and, and candy canes. Church, that's a miserable, miserable way to live life. Absolutely miserable. I want to read to you three, maybe four verses that Paul closed out this chapter with. And then we're going to close. Paul says this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always bounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Following the risen Christ is living our lives in light of that victory, church. Living in light of the victory that we've been given because of Christ. It's being free from living a victimized life. It's being free from living a life of bondage to sin. Because of Christ, we can now live a life that's courageous, one that's strong, one that's joy-filled, and one that knows that we can live for him and none of these things are done in vain. Man, Solomon said at the very end of his life, all of this is vanity. But he said, follow the Lord and keep his commandments on his deathbed. 
follow the Lord and keep his commandments. Church, I have a question as we close. Have you had your crisis? Have you had your crisis? Have you looked to the cross? And are you following the risen Christ? Let's pray. God, we we come to you. We come to you in this place, Lord, and and we are so grateful and, and thankful for the truths of your word, Lord, that you that you show us, that you show us yourself, that, that you show us the, the way to eternal life, the way to, to the forgiveness of sins. And God, I'm, I'm standing here and I can't help but think if there are people in this room that are in the midst of that crisis right now, but they haven't turned to the cross. Or maybe they've turned to the cross, but they're finding it difficult to follow you, the risen Christ. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to move in this place today. That we would be encouraged with truth. That we would be challenged by your word to really truly reflect and ask ourselves, what's my heart's desire? Where do I want to go? What needs to change? But most of all, God, that we would glorify your name because none of this is without, I am nothing, we are nothing, our lives are nothing, our salvation is nothing without you. So Lord, we thank you. If we're in here this morning, Lord, we we repent of our wickedness. We repent of the sinful man inside of us. God, we, we want to come humbly before you. We want to come with a broken and a contrite heart so that we can be filled so full with you that that's the only thing that oozes out of us. That we lay aside everything else, Lord, make us uncomfortable where we are at. So that your name would be lifted high in our workplaces, in our homes, in our schools, in our community, God. Use us. Start right here. We're open. We're open, God, to your to your move. So we can share, share with people the gospel, the true gospel, the gospel that Paul shared, the one that we've encountered in our lives so that that lost and hurting people would know hope, that they would interact and encounter with you and be changed. And I ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen and amen.